It's wonderful to be here with you and to share in the Word of God with you. Um, Preachers use a lot of jargon. We don't always explain it. When I was a boy uh, growing up in church, our pastor said, when you're talking to lost people, don't talk about all our special Christian words. They don't understand them. He said, explain them. He said, for example, don't talk about faith. They don't know what faith is, so define it. And I thought to myself as I remember hearing him say that, I don't know what faith is. Tell me, Pastor. And he didn't do it. <laughs> I went to a public school in my hometown, and public schools didn't teach me what faith was. Amazing. Went to a state university. And they didn't teach me what faith was. In 1968, I won the lottery. Amen. (laughs) It was called the draft lottery, Uh, which meant I got a three-year, all-expense-paid tour of some of the finest military posts in the United States during the Vietnam War. Thank you for the lottery win. It was wonderful. And the army didn't teach me anything about faith. They taught me about not trusting people, but they didn't teach me about faith. So I went to Dallas Seminary once I graduated, graduated from the army. Um, And I thought, now I will learn what faith is. But nobody defined faith. Maybe it was a problem that I was majoring in Old Testament, and Old Testament's about law. It's not about faith anyway, so. And then I did a doctorate in Old Testament, and I went to Memphis to teach at a small college. (laughs) There are more people in this section than there were students in the whole school. And I started teaching. I I had to teach a broad range of courses. And eventually I ended up teaching a course on the doctrine of salvation. And I thought, I cannot do to my students what everybody has done to me up to this point. When it comes to talk about faith, I have to have a definition. So I started looking around, reading everything I could find. No discussion of faith. What I did find was a tape by my favorite professor. Now, my favorite professor was from Charleston, South Carolina, where men eat rats and worship their ancestors, <laughs> according to his own testimony. Uh, um, and he said, in a recording that I had by him, he said, faith has three elements. It was very helpful. Finally, I'm going to get some help on what faith is. And here are the three elements. You ready? First element is notitia. The second is ascensus. And the third is fiducia. Well, I've always sought the most marketable degrees all my life long. And so in my doctorate and master's degree, I majored in Hebrew. You know how marketable that would be. And in my bachelor's degree, I majored in Latin. 
because I wanted to be the first Latin pope, a first Baptist pope, uh, or a missionary to Latvia. I, it was either one. I could go either way. But uh, since those terms were Latin, I could look them up and I could figure them out. Notitia means knowledge. Um, faith starts with knowledge. You cannot trust a person you don't know. Does that make sense to you? Um, you kind of give a certain level of trust to people you don't know. You assume that most people are not going to attack you. So you're walking down the street. You, you, you don't assume that somebody's going to attack you. But you're not going to give them your computer. You're not going to give them your, your, your passwords to your email account. Yes? Because you don't know them. There are people whom you do know, but you don't trust because you know them. Yes? So, so uh, faith, though, begins with knowledge. And we'll say a little bit more of this as we go. The passage that we are looking at this morning is a good place to go see all of this put together in one place. So we'll come back, give you these points first, and then we'll come back and look at them in Romans 4. So faith begins with knowledge. The second point that my professor offered ascensus is the word ascent. And uh, because I have to define that in the U.S. for my students, I will do that here. (laughs) Many of you, uh, English is a second language, and you understand it better than (laughs) people whose birth language is English. But but ascent means to accept what you you know as true. Uh, So you, you learn things and you know that they are true, and so you accept them that way. The third was more difficult. I went to the standard Latin dictionary and looked it up, and even went to some of the texts and looked at at the word in context, and I was getting nowhere. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, But you know how it is. uh, When you've done everything you can to solve a problem, yes, You've worked at it. You've tried to solve the problem. You've done everything you can. And then you think, well, maybe I ought to pray. Amen? So when you're trying to define a biblical word, maybe I ought to go to the Bible. And what I discovered was in 2 Peter chapter 1, Paul Paul wrote the whole Bible. I just get that out now because I will probably say that again at some point. Paul wrote... Romans and Ephesians and Second Peter and Isaiah and that slips out of my mouth periodically. But in in Second Peter one, Peter uses a a a style of communication that's common in the Book of Psalms. It's called parallelism, and where where you use either synonyms or antonyms uh, to help understand the the words that you most want to understand. And Peter says in in 1 Peter 1, Whom having not seen, you love. In whom, though you have still have not seen him, you believe. And it occurred to me that faith is at its heart a love relationship with the living God through the person of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to you? Yes, no? Move your heads. Yeah. If you will move, 
I will know you're still awake, and that's helpful. Uh, I used to teach a men's Bible study on Friday mornings in a funeral home. Uh, They don't have much business at 6.30 in the morning, so having a chapel, it's a wonderful place to have a Bible study. And I told the men, don't go to sleep, because they might think you're a customer. So... So move every once in a while. Just do something that I know you're still awake. Um, So at at its heart, the real essence of faith is love. Loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And if we had time, I would take you to Romans 10 and show you that's exactly how Paul develops his argument in Romans 10. He quotes from Deuteronomy 30. And before and after the quotation in Deuteronomy 30, he's talking about loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. So, at its heart, uh, faith is loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Paul thought that Moses believed that too, and that's why he quoted from Moses to, to explain what faith is in Romans 10. But it occurred to me, Those three points, as helpful as they are, are not enough. When I was a boy in Sunday school, when the teacher would say, Now, children, what is faith? And invariably, somebody would say, I know, teacher. It wasn't me because I never talked in class. (laughs) I thought, what am I going to do as a teacher? I don't ever talk in class. I don't know how I could even walk into class the first day. But here I am talking all the rest of my life. One of, the, one of the children in class would say, I know, teacher, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, and that's critical. Our text is going to say the same thing, that faith always leads to hope. And I noticed in one of the songs that we sang, we have changed the language, and uh, probably it's necessary because of the way English is developing over the years. Um, and I hope by thy good measure safely to arrive at home uh, was the way I, ta- I learned the song growing up. It's the way I sang it this morning. <laughs> but um, I hope. Don't you have any certainty? You see, in English, hope has become a word that you use in a circumstance where you're not sure what the outcome is going to be. You have no certainty about it, so you tell people what you hope for, but you're not sure it will come to pass. So that's why we have changed the wording of that song. But in the Bible, hope is not something you're you're, uh, not certain about. It's something you put your confidence in. And your confidence is only as good as the object in which it's placed. So... In Romans 5, um, you see, folks, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things most people don't know. Thank you for laughing. That's, that's what that's for. <laughs> One of the things I know, because I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, is that chapter 4 comes right before chapter 5. Huh? Uh, spent thousands of dollars to learn that, but glad I did. But in 5 verse 3... Paul says, we not only boast in hope of the glory of God, verse 2, but we boast in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces uh, endurance, and endurance produces approved character, 
and approved character produces hope. Not uncertainty about the future, but certainty because God is at work in us. He is building in us the character that we long for. He is building in us through suffering. Through suffering, he is building into us a character that is evident. God is in you. He's in your life. So uh, approved character produces confidence about the future. Yes? You follow? So hope is the fourth element of faith that my professor and his sources missed. That's amazing. Because as I ask students over the years, what is faith? They always cite Hebrews 11.1. But sometimes you can get educated enough to forget the obvious. And so I want to keep that back in. Now let's go back to the beginning. Four elements of faith. Knowledge. Any kind of knowledge? Well, no. You see, I might be able to argue before you that the sun is only 53 million miles from Earth and not 93 million miles. Would that change the way you live? Well, no. You probably believe it's only 53 million miles in Dubai anyway, but... uh, (laughs) But it wouldn't change the way you live. It's a non-issue for us. How far is the sun from the earth? I guess it's important, but for most of my daily activities, it doesn't matter. Yes? So not every kind of knowledge is necessary. There are two kinds of knowledge that are essential for faith. And we'll see them here in the passage in Romans 4. The two kinds of knowledge are the person and the plan of God. I don't have to have extensive knowledge of the person and plan of God, but I have to have some. Biblical evidence for this is in John chapter 20. Many other signs Jesus did which are not written in this book, but these have been written in order that. Here, here, in order that you may know. Yes? No. Notice knowledge there. Yes? in order that you may know, and what follows the word know is the necessary knowledge that you need for faith, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I know something about the person of God, yes, and something about the plan of God. I have to have that in order to trust God. And then ascent. I need to accept that as true and move on to a point where, as I learn more and more about God, I develop a a love relationship with him. Um, Just an aside on this. um, In in fiction and in film, um, writers develop sympathy for a character by exposing the, the consumer of the fiction to the character. The more you're exposed to that character, the more affection you have for them. Yes? Um, by the way, thank you for gasping when they said I was married 46 years ago. I appreciate that. But you hadn't seen me yet, so uh, 
you can be, you, you, you're not quite so surprised now. But after 46 years, 46 years ago, I said to my wife, I love you with all my heart. And that was true. Because everything I knew about myself, which wasn't much, <laughs> loved everything I knew about her, which also wasn't much. Forty-six years later, I say to her, I love you with all my heart. And it means a whole lot more, but it means the same thing that it did 46 years ago. Because all that I know about myself, which is now much more, <laughs> loves all that I know of her, which is now much more. Are, are you with me here? Yes or no? She is so much a part of my life I can't even think how I will respond if she goes to be with the Lord first. I, I, I can't even imagine how, how things are going to be. Um, first, I'll lose weight. Put me on that. Uh, <laughs> she does the cooking. I <laughs> And she's good. <laughs> uh, um, so... Uh, I need to accept these things as true, and then as I am more and more exposed to God, as I get to know Him better, as I spend time with Him, I, I grow in my love for Him. But at the beginning of my faith walk, I can say legitimately and rightly, God, I love you with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength. I just don't know myself very well. And in our relationship, he begins to expand that knowledge over time. And now, this, this um, fall, it will be 61 years since the Lord saved me. And now I can say, God, I love you with all my heart, soul, and strength. But it means so much more now, because I knew so little of him when I was a boy. And now I know so much more than I can say that legitimately. Now let's look at these things in the life of Abraham. Verse 17 is where I want to start. And I have to start in the middle of the verse. Uh, we're really starting in the middle of a, par- of a uh, sentence with verse 17, and so I have to pick it up and, and kind of piece it together. But at the, in verse 17 I read, As it is written, um, I have made you the father of many nations, uh, in the sight of whom he believed God who makes alive the dead, and calls things into existence that don't have existence. I just looked in a note on my computer on this verse, and they said, well, this is not talking about God's creative work. Well, I think it is. They said the, there's nothing in the context that suggests that it's dealing with God's creative work. Oh, I think it is. I have now learned two things about the person of God that Abraham knew. I don't know how he learned them. Uh, when I pick up his story in Genesis 12, I don't know anything that he knows about God except three verses. His whole Bible is three verses, Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. And Abraham left uh, Haran to go to Canaan, and Hebrews 11 tells us he didn't even know where he was going. What, what kind of thing happens to make a man leave everything that makes life secure and take off and go to a place he doesn't even know. Where are you going? I don't know, but I'm making good time. 
What makes a man do that? And the answer is an encounter with the living God. And he knew he was God. So he knew two things. He knew this person that appeared to him was God, and further he knew that he promised to make him great, to bless him, and to give him an innumerable offspring, and off he went, not knowing where he was going nor nor how long it was going to take. And I remind you in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that he stayed in the land of Canaan for 100 years and never left, never even went back for a vacation, never went to visit family back in Haran. A hundred years stayed where God promised him the land. But he never owned enough, more than enough to bury his family in. That's all he ever owned in the land. He lived as an alien and a sojourner in the land. What makes a man do that? Knowing a God whose character is such that I, know, I count him trustworthy no matter what he asks me to do. And, and, and so Abraham took off. We know now two things that he knows about God. He believes that God makes alive the dead and calls things into existence that don't have existence. Why is that important? That's verse 18. His, his life was a life carried out Against all hope. He entered the land of Canaan when he was 75 years old. Had no children and God promised him offspring. If there are more babies in my family, I want them born to my granddaughter, not to me. And I can tell you, my wife agrees. We have a 19-year-old granddaughter who just graduated from high school. Okay, she gets married. We want grandchildren from her, but no babies in our household. Yes, at 75. And he had to wait 25 years. All of you have driven someplace. You have instructions from somebody who's told you how to get to a place you've never been before. You remember how long the drive is to the place and how short the drive is back? (laughs) I was just astonished. On many occasions, I've been astonished at how quick the drive back was. But it takes a long time when you don't know where the end is. And 25 years must have been interminable for him because each year, you know, I've discovered something. I'm older than I've ever been before. Think about it. You'll get it in a minute. So are you. (laughs) But this is troubling. I keep getting older every day. I don't know how this happens. But Abraham started hope for a child at 75, and he had a 65-year-old barren wife. And he waited a year and two and five and ten and 15 and 20. And at 24 years, so how old is Abraham? 99. After 24 years, God appeared to him and said, next year I will come and Sarah will have a son. He's 99, she's 89 and barren. Faith always consistent. Look at Hebrews. Study Hebrews 11. See if this is not the case. Faith always operates 
in a context of the promises of God that make no sense to people of the earth. It's always against hope, but it's always in hope. How can I be confident in such situations? Because I know a God who makes alive the dead and who calls things into existence that don't exist. So verse 18 continues. Who, against hope, against all reason for confidence, he was confident. Believing in uh, that he should become the father of many nations, according to what was spoken to him, so shall your seed be. The promise of God was as real to him as anything else he could sense that he could perceive with his sight and hearing and smell and taste and touch. The perceptions of our senses are what define reality for most of us. But for the child of God, the promises of God and the character of God must become the touchstone by which we define what reality is. Abraham lived that way. He believed a God who makes alive the dead. Why is that important? Go on in verse 18. Um, uh, So, verse 19. And not being weak in faith, he considered his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. Faith doesn't mean you deny the reality that you perceive with your senses. It means that you take the Word of God as more authoritative, more significant than the reality you can perceive with your senses. It made no sense to lead Israel to the Red Sea. There's no way out. With the Egyptian behind, the Egyptian army behind, and with mountains on either side and the sea ahead of them, they are doomed. They must be destroyed. It makes no sense. But God is the one who leads people through impossibilities, not around them. I've heard since I was a boy, when God shuts a door, he opens a window. It's not what I find in Scripture. When God shuts a door, when he locks a door, he barricades it. He padlocks it. He makes the way impossible. Then he blasts it the way through it. It's when things get impossible that you know God is about ready to go to work. The problem is we think things are impossible a long time before they really get impossible. And so as things get worse and worse and we think they are more and more impossible, we give up on faith. Well, I guess God's not going to do anything here. I need to start looking for the window. But the window is almost always the wrong way out. When I stay into the impossibility... God blasts the way through it. He sends the wind, drives the water back, causes dry land to appear, and leads the people across on dry land. That makes no sense. Unless you bring God into it. There's an old story that was part of Dallas Seminary. The whole experience for me, uh, the story was about a man coming home from Sunday school with his son. And he said, what did you talk in Sunday school about today? And they, he, the boy said, oh, we talked about Noah's flood. And he said, you don't sound too impressed. No, the boy said, I can't believe there was a year-long worldwide flood that wiped out the whole human race. And his dad said, well, son, don't you think if God wanted to, he could do that? And the boy said, if you 
if you're going to bring God into it, I can believe anything. We laugh at that, but unfortunately it's my own response. Impossibilities are impossible. And God is kind of the genie in the box that you pull out every so often to solve your problems, but he really only works at times. He doesn't work very often. But it's because I, in my life, have not allowed myself really get to get to the point of impossibility. And when God, when, when God has taken me there and then has blasted the door open, the joy I have felt, the amazement at the evidence of God at work, all that time of impossibility becomes very clear. I can tell you, it only leads us to love the Lord more. So, verse 19, not being weak in faith, he regarded his own body already dead. Well, why would he not change that? Why wouldn't he say the promise of God means my body's not dead? No. He trusts not his body that he can feel. He trusts the word of God because God is trustworthy. And so he looks at his body, but he looks at a God who makes alive the dead. And he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yes? But God makes alive the dead. And supposing, through a genetic fluke, Sarah was born with no womb. God can create a womb. He calls things into existence that don't exist. So, if I know the person and the plan of God, and and now I know that Abraham knew both, then I can trust God even about impossibilities. And I can be confident about an impossible, improbable, illogical future. Verse 20. He did not doubt in faith... I'm sorry... Is that right? He did not doubt the promise of God in unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, uh, giving glory to God. He did not doubt. Why? Because, first, he knew the person of God and he knew the plan of God, and he accepted what he knew as true. Yes? I wish I knew how Abraham came to know that God called things, calls things into existence that don't exist. Um, he hadn't read Genesis 1, so I'm pretty confident of that. Yes? Moses wrote that. Moses was Abraham's descendant. <laughs> so how did he come to know that? Maybe, maybe through reasoning from what he knows to what he doesn't know, he keeps getting older and older and older, and God keeps promising, I'm going to give you this land. But he keeps getting older and older and older, and people in that day didn't live that long. So if he, he keeps getting older and still has no land, maybe he begins to think, God must be planning to raise me from the dead. So that by Genesis 22, we read in Hebrews that he believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. Indeed, it is resident, that very idea is resident in the Hebrew of Genesis 22. Noah said, Noah? Um, Abraham said to the servants, uh, you stay here. The boy and I will go up there, and we will worship. 
And this is the way it's written in Hebrew. And we will return. How did he know that? Because he knows a God who makes alive the dead and calls things into existence that don't exist. And he has promised him an innumerable offspring. So, verse, verse 20, he didn't doubt the promise. He accepts it as true. And it's as true as all of the reality he can see with his eyes, all of the reality he can hear with his ears, that he can touch, that he can taste, that he can smell. The Word of God is as true as all of that, even though the Word of God seems to contradict all of that. So that night, when Abraham crossed the, crossed the camp from the men's tent to the women's tent. Have you ever stayed in a tent for any period of time? How much privacy is there in a tent community? Very little. Can you imagine what was happening that night? Here is Abraham, 99 years old. And the folks hear him, the servants, all the people in the camp, hear him going across the camp to Sarah's tent. What is that old boy doing? Can't he leave that poor woman alone? Can you hear it? Why do I bring that up? Because I haven't told you everything about love, love relationships yet. Um, when my favorite professor was my age, he said, I know my wife. I know I know my wife. I know I know I know her. But sometimes I don't know her. (laughs) Uh, um, When God made the promise the previous year, in fact that year, the year he was 99, when God made the promise, do you remember that Sarai laughed? Yes? Why did she laugh? Because she didn't believe the promise. And the reason I know that is God said to Abram, why did your wife laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. You don't lie about what you believe. Yes? She doesn't believe the promise of God. How can it be? She's 89 years old. She's barren. How could she possibly have a son? So Abraham not only is stepping out, and mind you, Love relationships always do two things. They make two changes in our lives. One is they change our behavior. When you have a love relationship, you act differently than you do when you don't. Is that true? Yes? And second, the most important change that it makes in our lives is it leads us to enter on a risk to make ourselves vulnerable to the one that we love. So when my favorite professor said, I know, I know, I know her, but sometimes I don't know her. Even after 40 and more years of marriage, there's still a vulnerability to open yourself up to a person you've lived with for all these years. (laughs) But I just discovered about two years ago that my wife likes science fiction movies. Where did that come from? Nothing in our experience of 44 years together, and we, we were engaged for two and a half years before that, 
So nothing in my experience of her had prepared me for science fiction movies. Science fiction and Jan Allman don't go together in my mind. But she watches hours of, of science fiction movies. Just drives me nuts. Same show over and over and over again. Not, she's not watching the same episode. It just keeps going and it's all the same story. So it just drives me nuts. Where did this come from in this woman? How much more is there in her that I don't know yet? What is she liable to pull sometime when I least expect it? And I will be hung out to dry. I don't know. I can never get into her mind. All love relationships lead us to to open ourselves up, make ourselves vulnerable, to accept risk on behalf of the one that we love. And here is Abraham heading across the camp, the tongues wagging, going to Sarah's tent. And Sarah's not even sure the promise of God is worth paying attention to. Is there any risk for Abraham? Yeah, there really is. You can best see faith in the Old Testament by watching people who risk things on God. Um, I I do this when I teach Genesis. It's real quick. I can do it very uh, quickly. It's oversimplified, but sometimes when you're teaching, you have to do that. Abraham could trust God as long as he had instruction from God what to do. Isaac could trust God as long as he was forced into it. Jacob could trust God as long as he could make a plot to solve his own problems and always made them worse. And Joseph could trust God for anything. Watch the styles of their faith. And the amazing thing, brothers and sisters, is that every one of those men is approved by God in Hebrews 11. That just stuns me. And there are some worse ones in Hebrews 11. Jephthah and Gideon and Samson and Barak. What are they doing there? Uh, But they're there. How much faith does it take to please God? Not how much. Just faith. So, So far we have seen Abraham acting in confidence toward God because he believes... Uh, he knows a God who is God and who, calls, who makes alive the dead and calls things into existence that don't exist. And we have seen that he does not doubt, so he accepts the knowledge that he has as true and valid. And then we know that he is in a love relationship, first because he left Haran, but now because he's going across the camp to Sarah's tent. And having to face the reproach of the people in the camp and the potential reproach of Sarah herself. So verse 20, he did not doubt in unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being convinced that what God had promised he was able also to do. Now, I always end this discussion by saying, We want to grow in faith. How do we do it? Well, there are two ways. One way that's not guaranteed and the other that is. So let's go back over. What is faith? Faith includes four elements. Knowledge of the person and plan of God. Ascent, accepting what you know is true. You enter into a love relationship with the living God through the person of Jesus Christ. 
That entails changed behavior and the adoption of risk. And fourth element is confidence about the future. Okay? Yes? So how can we help our faith grow? Well, one way, unfortunately it's not guaranteed, is um, to learn more about the person and plan of God. There are people who know lots about the Bible who have no faith at all. That's the unfortunate thing. But you can't claim to know a person if you don't know anything about them. If you say to me, oh, you've been married 46 years. How, how tall is your wife? Eh, she's, uh, uh, she's, uh, she has a measurement, I know. Um, well, what color are her eyes? Um, she has two. Uh, what is her favorite food? Um, Um, I don't know. What will you say to me? You don't even know your wife. How can, how can you claim to know a person and know nothing about them? Now, I can know things about a person and still not know them. I could claim to know Abraham Lincoln. Not much chance of that because he died 80 years before I was born. So uh, there's not much chance of that. I might have read a lot of books about him, Yes and know things about him, but you can't claim to have a relationship with a person who's been dead 80 years before you're born. So, um, so I, can, I, I, I can increase my knowledge of the person and plan of God, but the unfortunate thing is that doesn't always cause me to love him more. I can make that an academic study instead of a study of the person whom I love, and it will just harden me instead of drawing me near to God. There is, however, a guaranteed way, and let me explain it to you. It's very simple. Is there anything in Scripture you know to be God's will for his people that's risky to you, that you would feel vulnerable, you might be damaged if you got involved in it? If there is, is God trustworthy? If he's trustworthy and he's called us to do these things, can he be trusted if I do them? Yes, objectively, but I'm not sure about myself. <laughs> I might get hurt. Well, of course you might. There's nothing you have done that's worthwhile in your life in which you didn't experience pain. Is that true? Any skill you have, any talent you've developed, you have experienced pain in the pursuit of that. Am I right? Then if you can do that for uh, victory in a sport, if you can do that for the applause of a crowd, could you not do the same thing for the applause of God? And, and knowing that your, your, your performance for the crowd might be excellent, but they'd have no taste and no, no ability to appreciate it. So they might not applaud anyway. Yes? But God always will honor himself, and as he honors himself, he always will honor the servant who trusts him. That's amazing to me. Can't get over that quite. So if I will embrace, it doesn't take much, a little risk. What's going to happen? I know this because I've done 
enough of. I haven't done much. I want you to understand I've lived most of my life on fear. So I'm telling you what I've learned, not so much from experience, but from the Word of God, and I'm beginning to experience. But when you embrace a little bit of risk, two things will happen. You probably will encounter some pain. But not all pain is damage. But what you will experience is the great mercy, the great grace, the great joy of the Lord. And when you do, you will learn more about the person and plan of God that will cause you to love him more so that you can risk more. And there will be pain. But in the pain, you will experience the faithfulness of God so that you know more about the person and plan of God that enables you to love him more so that you can risk more. And if you like roller coasters, you cannot object to the Christian life. Because a roller coaster is intended to make you feel in danger when you're perfectly safe. Yes? Well, that's the entire Christian life. You are always perfectly safe. But you're going to go into things that are going to make you feel in danger. Because if I never can know my wife completely, how will I ever know God completely? And it's in what I don't know about God that he can scare me out of my wits, make me feel that things have become impossible and I must fail. But then at the last moment, when it's least reasonable, he blasts the door open and shows his mercy He shows his plan that has been at work all the time. Things have been getting more and more impossible. Makes me love him more so I can risk more. You want more faith? You want more of the character that you long for? We've looked at two passages today, briefly one, a little more in time with the other. Um, But it is through hardship that God creates a proved character in us. Do you remember Romans 5, 3 to 5? And it is through risk that Abraham showed that he loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength. Let me pray. Father, thank you for giving us the hope of a life by faith. Now teach us to live it, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen.